Hello, all you skeptics. I'm Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. I'm just going to apologize in advance because I'm on Accutane and I'm like drier than the Sahara. So if you hear me like gasping for air or like licking my lips, that's why. Um, It's really cold here in North Carolina and, you know, we have the heat on. I'm on this medication. I'm actually about to go up in my dosage. So it's going to be a lot worse, but like my lips and all my skin is so dry. So just bear with me as I'm like, gasping through this episode. (laughs) So I really just want to say thank you to everybody who's tuning in. It seems like according to Anchor, which is like my podcast host, that I have about 40 or so people who are consistently listening to all the episodes and that's just fucking mind-blowing. And so I really want to say thank you. And a lot of you guys have been reaching out to me individually and just saying really fucking nice things. And like, obviously, Like, I'm not perfect. This podcast isn't perfect. Like, some of you have even said that you're here for, like, the trial and error, and I I love doing this podcast already. It's only a couple weeks in. It's been so much fun, and to hear that you guys are having fun, too, and looking forward to it, it just makes my heart so warm, because that's the whole point. Like, I have a podcast because I want to talk to people about these kinds of things, so I really fucking appreciate it. It means so much to me. Um, It's scary to put yourself out there like this, and to be well-received by people that I like. And, you know, random strangers doesn't have to be just like an echo chamber over here, but it is just really nice. So I just wanted to say, like, I appreciate all of you guys. But I'm not going to lie to you. I've been, like, so exhausted. I mean, I work a 40-hour job, and then I do this on the side, and I didn't realize how much time and effort was going to go into actually, like, researching all of these topics. Well, yes, I did. That's kind of a lie. But, like, my first episode... I recorded that in like October or maybe late September and then I didn't record again until this past December because like it took me so long just to research the first episode and then I kind of realized like holy shit like that's what this podcast is going to be and you can tell like the first episode the audio is weird the audio was weird in my last episode I'm still figuring it out I'm not an IT like audio kind of person so I'm figuring it out but it's been a lot of work I won't even lie but I'm so happy to do it. Like, it's so much fun. I literally, I like stay up late and I'm just like, I dream about the podcast. It's so much fun. So bear with me as I'm figuring things out, but I just appreciate you guys. Um, And I think I'm going to stop talking about that and we can go ahead and join into or jump into our topic for this week. I think this topic is actually going to be our first two-parter. So I'm so fucking excited about that. I thought this topic was super interesting. Oh my God, I'm so over how many times I say super interesting. And I say it like in positive and negative ways. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Or I'm like, wow, that's so interesting. Ugh, I'm gonna have to find new words, but okay. It's interesting to me, okay? This topic is kind of random and let's just let's just get into it. So we are going to talk about the Y2K white trash clothing brand Von Dutch. 
the cancellation and the revival of Vaud Dutch. Recently in 2021, a docu-series came out about Von Dutch on Hulu, and so I watched that. I was reading some, like, reviews on it, and people were saying that it was not really what it meant to be. Like, I guess they tried to really set it up, like, this kind of, like, true crime topic for people to get obsessed with, because you know how we are. Like, docu-series will come out about, like, Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, and everybody gets all hooked on it. So I think that was, like, what people thought that was supposed to be. Um, I just kind of want to talk about, well, we, we'll talk about crime, but I just want to talk about all of it. But I did, a lot of this information does come from that docu-series. It was really interesting because, like, pretty much everyone involved with Von Dutch was able to be interviewed. So, like, you get, like, the whole story for the most part. And then I found some other articles from the era and then more recently. So that's what we're talking about. Okay, so... Von Dutch, the clothing company, was inspired by an artist who went by the name Von Dutch. So we're going to start by laying a foundation of who that is, and then we're just going to kind of build and build and build off of that. So Von Dutch's real name is Kenny Howard, and he was born in Compton on September 7th, 1929, during the Great Depression, (laughs) um, when the stock market crashed. And this also makes him a Virgo. So from my experience, I have a lot of Virgos in my life. Um, But from my experience, Virgo men seem to be very reserved and they kind of pretend like they're super chill or like they don't care. But I feel like they really do care and they really do take things very seriously. Virgos tend to be perfectionists and are more closed off and less willing to trust and rely on others. I do fuck with Virgos, though, but in more of, like, a love-hate kind of way. Like, I would definitely say that there's always tension between me and the Virgos in my life. And that's not necessarily bad tension, but it's definitely there. Y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? Von Dutch was famously known for not liking people. He was given the nickname Von Dutch because of how cold and stubborn he was. I guess I was reading that, like, this was... They were saying, like, he's like a Dutch man. So I guess Dutch men are, like cold and stubborn. I don't know, (laughs) but that was why they called him that. Von Dutch originally started out as a car and motorcycle mechanic, and then he took up pinstriping. Von Dutch became extremely skilled at pinstriping cars and motorcycles. Pinstriping is basically like taking a very thin special paintbrush and creating these like super intricate little decorative paintings, typically on the outside of cars or motorcycles. I think sometimes people will do it to like fancy vases and like bowling balls and shit. I didn't really know like what this was called or that this was a thing. It wasn't something that I was super familiar with, so I looked up a video of it and I watched someone actually pinstripe like a a I don't know. I don't know car parts. Some part of a car or a motorcycle and they literally just sit there and they like paint on these cars freehand. Like they hold it between their pointer finger and their thumb and like draw and use their three fingers to steady. It makes me really nervous watching it because I'm like, oh my god, you're like painting over this like nice car paint already and doing it freehand on the car. It just scares me. What if you fuck up? But it's actually super cool. And if you see a picture of it, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll be like, oh, that's pinstriping. Like everyone's probably seen it, but like, I don't know, maybe I'm just the one living under a rock. I didn't really know what this was, so I just thought I would give you guys some background on it. There's tons of stuff on YouTube you can look at. Von Dutch becomes known as the father of pinstriping. He started painting really cool shit like flames and winged eyeballs 
which would later become the inspiration for a lot of the Von Dutch clothing brand's prints. Von Dutch was considered a garage surrealist, and he became this image of, like, classic America, kind of like rock and roll art. Cue American by Lana Del Rey. (laughs) Um, A lot of his work became, like, classic symbols within the custom culture movement. And so the custom culture movement really picked up in SoCal in, like, the 1960s, very, like, hot rod era. According to Wikipedia, custom culture is usually defined... Oops. I can't read. Custom culture is usually identified with the greasers of the 1950s, the drag racers of the 1960s, and the lowriders of the 1970s. Other subcultures that have had an influence on custom culture are the skinheads, mods, and rockers of the 1960s, the punk rockers of the 1970s, the metal and rockabilly music, along with the scooter boys of the 80s, and the psychobillies of the 90s. And so these are basically... Lots of fun words that I looked up, and rockabilly is like rock and roll mixed with like country music. And then, like, if you're a rockabilly, like, that's like what you listen to is like this blended rock and roll country music style. And then, scooter boys was basically just like a term for guys who like rode their bikes. And then, psychobilly was like, I think, an even heavier form of rockabilly. So, they're all just kind of like forms of counterculture, like rebels, if you will. Each separate culture had added their own customizations to cars, their own fashions, influenced the music, and added their own ideas of what is cool, what is acceptable, and what is not. Everything from wild pinstriped paint jobs to chop-top Mercuries to custom Harley-Davidson and Triumph motorcycles to metal flake and black primer paint jobs, along with music, cartoons, and monster movies, have influenced what defines anyone and anything who is part of this automobile subculture. And the quote continues, In the 1990s and 2000s, custom culture had taken on a rebirth of American subcultures from the 1950s and the 1960s with DIY activities. Each style is distinct and has its roots in American automobile history. Many styles that would not have tolerated each other in the past now come together in large car shows. This was interesting to me because I feel like I know people that are into this kind of thing, but I didn't realize that that was like what it was called or that it was such a big movement. I also didn't realize that so many cultures were like tied together through this. So Von Dutch has a manifesto and I'm going to read it to you. It's very quick. He says, use any of my stuff you want to. Nothing is original. Everything is in the subconscious. We just tap it sometimes and think we have originated something. Genes make us more or less interested in certain things, but nothing is truly original. Copyrights and patents are mostly an ego trip. And when I said genes, it wasn't like denim genes. It was like our genes, like our chemical makeup, make us more likely to be interested in certain things, which I guess makes sense. I think nature versus nurture on that one, but okay. But I mean, he's kind of right. Like the copyrights and patents are mostly an ego trip. I kind of love that because it just, you know, capitalism. (laughs) He was described as being very individualistic. And again, he just didn't like people that much. He just has that kind of like cold bad boy attitude that you think of like a guy in a leather jacket and jeans with a white shirt on a motorcycle like what's up babe oh my god kind of like the like evil dentist in the little shop of horrors that's what I kind of picture (laughs) but even more um like I guess less outgoing and just more evil so according to this infamous article published by OC Weekly in 2004 It was kind of like the first piece of literature that came out 
about something that we'll talk about later that I don't want to ruin. So don't look it up, even though I'm going to put all my sources in the show notes. I don't want to give anything away. So according to this article, Von Dutch was as talented as he was prolific, becoming the first person to airbrush monsters on clothing, turning out eerie, surrealistic surrealistic paintings, building and etching expensive knives and rare vintage guns, and striping hundreds of hot rods over the years. Pinstriper Franco Costanza, a.k.a. Von Franco, remembers Dutch grudgingly striping a guy's glossy, beautiful 1934 Ford and painting a tiny, perfect ladybug on one pillar just to annoy the owner. When the man found the ladybug, he demanded Dutch take it off. So, Dutch says, okay, I'll take it off, recalls Franco, a burly, jovial man with a jet-black pompadour and goatee. He takes his hammer and just smashes the ladybug, just ruins this guy's paint job and tells him to get the fuck out of there. So, like, obviously, based on this anecdote, is that the right word? Anecdote? Based on this tale, Von Dutch was not a people person. Basically, he's just a super talented asshole. This same article says that in the 60s, Von Dutch was allegedly driving drunk with his pregnant wife in the car with him, and he wrecked the car causing his wife to lose their baby. And then he went on the run, essentially, to avoid being prosecuted. So, like, at the very least, he's a fucking dick. Like, he's a big old dick. Let's just get that straight. (laughs) He was described by friends as being similar to Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, or Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. I'm going to say it. I'm going to expose myself. I know what they're implying. I know what they're saying. It's, like, night and day, whatever. I don't know the literature around Dr. Chekyll and Mr. Hyde, so I think maybe I should look into that. (laughs) Um, When you caught him in a good mood, though, he was delightful, apparently, but like more often than not, he was just incredibly violent and drunk, so that's what they were getting at. Von Dutch was an alcoholic, and he ultimately died of liver disease on September 19th, 1992, at 63 years old in Ventura, California. He left a very unsettling note behind that we will come back to later in either, I believe, yeah, it'll be the next episode. So there's Von Dutch for you. That's the actual artist. He's not actually affiliated with Von Dutch, the clothing brand that we're going to discuss today, but he was the inspiration for the brand name and essentially the brand later on. So now let's kind of take ourselves down the path of learning about Von Dutch the company just briefly, and then I'm going to tell you the story. Von Dutch the company. The setting of this story is going to take place in the 1990s and the early 2000s. The company originally started off as a brand focused on streetwear, so picture like a working class dude in denim and cargos, but with some stylistic flares like cool patchwork pieces and prints. The California countercultures ate this shit up, The surf and skate scene wanted something edgier at the time, and the gangsters were just wearing it because it was hard as shit. And I hate that I said the gangsters, like, ew. What do I say? The gangsters? (laughs) Um, So yeah, they, like, these countercultures picked up on this, and then the brand just started growing and kept getting bigger and bigger, like, exponentially. Eventually, A-list celebrities were wearing Von Dutch left and right, and, like, all I can think of and I'm sure all you guys can think of, is the bedazzled trucker hats. Then it just became, like, incredibly oversaturated. Everyone had Von Dutch. This kind of reminds me a little bit of, like, Carhartt and how it's gone mainstream. Like, Carhartt is what construction workers wear and other blue-collar workers, like, they wear that to their job. 
That's what they work in. And then people just took that shit and turned it into mainstream fashion. And like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think it's cute. I'd wear a Carhartt beanie, whatever. Um, It's just interesting. So I found this quote, the New York Times published, Emma McClendon, a fashion historian and the author of Power Mode, noted the tension between the brand's trendiness and its roots, talking about Von Dutch. There's implicit, this is what Emma said, there's implicit power dynamics in the appropriation of garments like this because you can pick and choose what garments you're wearing, but leave behind the labor and the legacy of people who originally wore these garments in the context that they wore them in. Overall, I think Von Dutch had some really cute shit. Like, I definitely would have rocked some Von Dutch back in the day. It's actually making a little bit of a comeback, I guess. Like, I mean, it's making a comeback. Like, I don't know if it should, but we'll let's let's get into the whole story of the scandal. We can talk about it. So I mentioned earlier the docuseries on Hulu. It's called The Curse of Von Dutch, A Brand to Die For. And so basically, the common theme throughout this whole docuseries is that pretty much anyone who's involved with the Von Dutch brand gets in and like just negative shit happens. (laughs) So let's keep that in mind as we go through this story. So let's first talk about Ed Boswell. So he is the OG creator of the brand. In my opinion, after all this research, there's a lot of debate, but I think like, we'll, we'll talk about it, but he's the OG creator of the brand. He's not responsible for the Von Dutch that, like, we're all familiar with, the one that got super famous. Like, it's the same company, but, like, they were just at, it's just different levels. So he basically was just selling iron-on patches with the name Von Dutch on it, like a little logo that said, logo that said Von Dutch. Ed Boswell was incredibly inspired by Von Dutch's artwork, and he's, like, very much consumed in that kind of culture. The OC Weekly article I mentioned previously quotes Ed Boswell as saying that he liked Von Dutch because he smoked pot, drank beer in lieu of food, and never had a social security number, and did whatever he wanted and was a legendary guy. That sounded cool to me. So that's a quote from Ed. The company started because Ed Boswell was friends with Von Dutch's, like, two real biological daughters, Lisa and Lorna. Once Von Dutch passed away in 1992, Ed asked for permission to sell patches using the Von Dutch name, and the daughters agreed, so they did like a little licensing agreement. Once Ed Boswell met with Mike Castle and Bobby Vaughn, who I haven't introduced you to yet, but they're coming up, shit hits the fan. So the Von Dutch, the version of the company that we all know it as, was officially founded in 1999. But before we get to that point, let me introduce you to Mike and Bobby. They're like sweet little himbos. Well, I don't know if you'd call them sweet. They're little himbos, though. And Bobby was so cute. Like, I, I don't think he's cute in the documentary. Like, he he's aged and whatever. But like, all these pictures of him from when he was like a young man, I'm like, oh my goodness, he's so cute. But we're going to talk about Mike first. I think we should introduce Mike before we get to Bobby. So Mike Castle. Mike was apparently known as this, like, crazy bad dude. Like, he was always getting into trouble, and you just didn't want to fuck with him, essentially. In the documentary, he's, like, really old. He's old now. And he honestly seemed, like, really sweet. He's, like, one of those people that you feel like you've met them before. Like, as he was talking in the show, I was like, I feel like I know this guy. He says that he is the creator of Von Dutch. I also think that he does have some, like, it's valid that he's saying that. But I think him and Ed have different contributions to, like, what Von Dutch is. And we'll, we'll talk more about that here soon. But Mike doesn't have a Wikipedia page. 
So I'm just going to tell you like what I discovered from the docu-series and articles online. Mike is an Asian man, and he grew up in a predominantly white area of Southern California. He said that he grew up experiencing a lot of racism and harassment. When he got older, though, he was just like, and he's really small. He's like this small guy. So it was also like people were beating up on him because he was, it was easy too. But like when he got older, he was like, I'm not letting this shit happen anymore. People aren't going to beat me up. And um, he became more of like what he likes to call an outlaw. So as a young man, he started selling weed and cocaine. And then he met a Colombian girl who had connections with the Escobar family. He decided to make being a trapper into a living. And he was making good money doing it. He had Ferraris. He had nice homes. Despite being a drug dealer, though, Mike was creative and artistic. And he drew all these cool designs. And he wanted to create his own clothing brand. Here we have Bronze Age. Enter Bronze Age. So Mike decided to use his drug money in order to create his brand Bronze Age. (laughs) Once they got the clothing store up and running, they started laundering money through it. They're like, okay, we're spending this much on marketing, but really they're they're like bringing in that money and spending it on drugs, whatever. Um, The clothing company quickly gained popularity amongst gangs local to the area just because of this, like through connections. And it was described as black fashion. It had like really cool fucking designs, big baggy shorts. It was just cool. It was like 90s fucking cool streetwear. It was different from anything else that was popular at the time. And like so many surf and skate brands at the time were selling these like tight fitting clothes with corny patterns, whatever. And so skaters were looking for other things to wear and it became very popular amongst the Southern California surf and skate culture as well. But, like, we can't forget, it was literally ran by Mike Castle, who was moving serious amounts of drugs and had, like, legit gang connections, um, including the Escobar family, as we mentioned. So even though the surf and skate culture were hopping on the trend, people associated Bronze Age with street culture, selling drugs, killing people, etc., all that jazz. Mike Castle gets busted doing a huge cocaine deal, and he gets, like, four years in jail. So he went to San Quentin Prison. He lost everything, but he kept working on Bronze Age in jail. He would trade cigarettes for art, and he would mail the art home, and they would make clothes out of his designs. So now it's this, like, super fucking cool underground edge to it. Like, he's drawing shit in the jail. He's getting people to help him. Whatever. And then they're sending out these designs to be mailed home, and then the people who are still working on Bronze Age are, like, printing them and selling them. Like, that's cool. Like, (laughs) I think that's cool. It's, like, edgy and dope. I'd wear it. Okay. And so one of the things that, like, the sayings or things that was printed on the clothes while he was in jail was, the real underground will never sell out. And I think this is so iconic and ironic. So just hold on to that thought. When Mike got out of jail, he was really focused on Bronze Age. He's like, fuck this. Like, I don't want to go to jail anymore. So he's like, I'm going to put all I have into Bronze Age, turn my life around. So that's Mike. Let's talk about Bobby. Bobby Vaughn also says that he's the creator of the brand, and I just, he's not. (laughs) He's just not. He's definitely involved with it, but he's just not. Bobby was born on February 20th, 1975, so that makes him a Pisces. I also saw on this website, it was like, his birthday was February 20th, and he's a Taurus, and I was like, that's not right, so I wonder if maybe that was in, like, Eastern astrology versus Western. Um, I don't know, but I think, when I was watching it, I was like, that guy's a Taurus. And then when I saw that, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, he's a Taurus. But that birthday doesn't make sense. So I don't know. His mother was Japanese and his father was Mexican, but he was put up for adoption after only a few days of 
existing. And he was adopted by a white family. And this dude is weird. Like, I don't have anything against him. He's just got strange energy and he's kind of like a lot to take in all at once. He's very energetic. He has something about him, though, that like makes him kind of endearing. It's just like very Pisces all around. He said that when he was a kid, the first thing that he would say to everyone was always like, I love you. And then right after he says that in the interview, he's like, it was kind of manipulative of me to be that way, you know, like trying to get into the family like that. And I was like, no, baby, you were a baby. Like you were a child. You're not being manipulative. You literally just wanted to be loved. Like you were adopted by a family because they wanted you. And like, like they wanted you there. You weren't manipulating them. Like you wanted love. They wanted to love you. Like that just, when he said that, I was like, oh my God, that's sad. Like, that's not the case. You were a baby. Like I said, he was adopted into a white family. So Bobby dealt with racism. Like, I I don't think like from his family, he didn't say that, but he grew up in a white family. He was around a lot of like white people in Southern California, white surfer dudes. He also started surfing and he thought that all the surfwear brands at the time were super lame. And so he wanted to find something that was actually cool. And this is when he discovers Bronze Age. This was when his life began to change too. Like he started to adopt the lifestyle that came with this streetwear. It was something that he hadn't really been exposed to yet. He felt a connection with it. It was new. It was exciting. Like, come on. Like we've all like there's there's something exciting about like the skater boy kind of like grungy street boy. Like we've all we've all been there. We've all had a thing for one of them. Like, you know what I mean? So there's just something enticing about this grungy lifestyle. So he's He's definitely changing his, like, the way he looks at life, the things that he's doing, and he meets Mark Rivas. So let's talk about Mark Rivas. They honestly don't paint him in the best light in this documentary. Um, I think that we'll see why, <laughs> um, but I feel like he's definitely got lots of, lots of shadow self there and lots of light self there um, based on what we know about him. So. Bobby met Mark Rivas in high school, and they they clicked immediately. They had a deep connection. They were basically brothers. And the Rivas family was, their their whole, like, thing was gangbanging and holding down the West Side. And that's what Bobby said. They would have these, like, huge dope-ass block parties with all the bitches, you know. Honestly sounds really fun. But the Rivas family, they were, like, not to be fucked with. And Bobby got a gun from them. They were like, you know, you're affiliated with us. You're associated with the gang. So here's a gun for protection. You better act like you're associated, like you know what to do. And so here they are, like, very, very young in high school. And, like, getting involved with, like, this no-bullshit gang activity, this lifestyle. They were just born... Mark was born into it, and then Bobby was brought into it by association. And so this is in 1993. I think he said that they were in like freshman year when this next incident I'm about to tell you about happened. They were all hanging out at a Burger King and Bobby has his gun on him and he accidentally shoots it off and like sparks at his foot. So Mark takes the gun from him. He's like, dude, what the fuck? Like, you can't just be like playing around with this gun. And then 10 minutes later, a van pulls up with a bunch of dudes in it. And Mark pulls out his gun and he starts shooting. And I mean, like, it wasn't like he just started randomly shooting. I think it was like this van pulled up on them and then it was like, oh, my God, like everyone disperse and people are shooting. And so Mark ends up actually shooting someone and they died on site. 
And so Mark and Bobby are like, we have to get the fuck out of here. They get away. Um, and like both of them are kind of bickering, putting the blame on each other. Like, what the fuck, Mark? Why did you do that? Why did you just shoot and kill somebody? Oh my God, Bobby, you're the dumbass who shot off the gun in the first place. Like we wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't been hot. So the next day they packed up their car and they left to Mexico and they took Mark's brother, Jimmy with them because at this point, like I get, I don't know exactly what happened with Jimmy. Apparently Jimmy was also wanted for something else and Mark was wanted because he shot someone. So they're like, okay, we got to go to Mexico. So on the road trip down there, they see a cop right behind them and he turns his lights on and they're like, oh my God, fuck, we're about to get pulled over. Um, Bobby, you need to pop him. Like, just be prepared. And so Bobby's in the back seat, like freaking out. He's like, he has a sawed off shotgun. He's like, oh my God, I'm about to shoot this fucking cop. And then luckily the cop pulls off down another street, like presumably pulled onto another more important call. But they were planning to kill this cop. And then eventually they they made it down to Mexico like they planned and the Rivas brothers ran away and Bobby went home. So at this point, Bobby is like done with the guns, done with the bullshit. He wants to turn his life around and he's brainstorming of what he can do to like change his life trajectory. And he's like, oh, yeah, I love Bronze Age. I'm passionate about this. Like, what can I do with them? Like, let me make this my career. You know, he was wearing Bronze Age very young. He says that he was started wearing it at, like, 12. At this point, he's, like, 18 years old. And he said that he was basically, like, peddling clothes for Bronze Age all throughout the Venice Beach and surrounding areas, selling clothes to skaters and gangsters. Very grassroots. So now I'm going to tell you how Mike and Bobby meet. Bobby contacts the Bronze Age headquarters, and he's like, yo, I want to work with you guys. I fuck with your brand. I want to be a part of this. And they were like, okay, fine. So they invited him down to the headquarters. And Bobby says the headquarters was like in the hood, I guess. But when you go inside, it was yacht themed and like really cool looking. And Bobby comes in to meet Mike and they find out that they have a lot in common. They like went surfing, they bonded and they became essentially like family. It was to the point where Bobby apparently even moved in with Mike and Mike's current wife at the time, Janelle, it's now his ex-wife, so they're not together. But in the documentary, she has nothing but, like, nice things to say. So I don't think it was anything that was, like, super crazy that happened between them two. Like, they both seemed to talk nicely of each other, which I, I love when that happens, when people split and they can still be cordial about it. But yeah, so it was, like, this cute little family. Bobby was a lot younger. I think they said that he was, like, 15 years younger than Mike. So it was kind of like Mike was this fatherly figure for him. So they have this cute little triad family and like suddenly Bronze Age is getting noticed in magazines. They made almost a million dollars in genuine sales. Like it was picking up traction. People were interested in it. So then someone comes in, this investor, he's been working with brands that were big at the time, like brands in JCPenney and like Skechers. His name was Irving Cass. Cass bought the company Bronze Age for $35,000, which is literally all they had in inventory at the time. So he didn't value anything else like trademarks, goodwill, any of that. He just bought the company. And Mike is not a businessman. He's a drug lord thing. (laughs) I guess not drug lord, but he's like a drug dealer working with the Escobar family. So it's not like actually running this business is like I mean he was passionate about it and he wanted to do it. But he I don't think he knew like what really goes into running a business and all the things that you have to consider. So he he got ripped off. Um, Cass does hire Mike 
to like stay and work for Bronze Age, but they essentially just like fire him pretty much immediately. And then they, the company goes bankrupt. They filed for chapter 11. And just like that, Bronze Age is over. So it's really sad. But Mike and Bobby's relationship is still going strong. They're looking for the next big thing. They went shopping at a trade show one day and they saw all these Von Dutch patches. So enter Ed. It's Ed selling the patches inspired by the real Von Dutch. And so they're like, who's Von Dutch? Like, I've heard of that, but like, what is it? And Ed starts talking to them about how Von Dutch was all about nothing being original and blah, 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 blah. All these weird takes on capitalism. And Ed's vision was to make the clothing company based on the creativity of Von Dutch's art styles. And so Mike and Bobby were like, oh, that sounds dope. Like, let's rip him off too. So then all these guys just befriend each other. And Bobby and Ed and Mike are just getting along really well. So this is perfect now that Bronze Age is over. Like, Mike can come in, take Von Dutch to the next level. So this is what I was getting at about Mike and Ed kind of having different creator rights to it. So, like, Ed started the original business and was like, I like Von Dutch. I'm going to make a business inspired by him. And then Mike came in, and as we'll see here, he's the one who actually has, like, the creative juices he comes up with the designs like he basically takes like what he was putting into bronze age that kind of like underground like really dope aesthetic and he's bringing it over to von dutch but with that kind of like all-american working class flair to it so they both have kind of ownership to it i think mike is kind of what made it become what it is though that's what we'll say so now they're all working together and they're like, we got to get this thing off the ground. But no one would loan Mike money because he's a felon. And I think they were trying to keep it like a legit business. So no one would like legitimately loan him money. Bobby says that they also couldn't get money because they weren't white. Now, Ed is white, but he also doesn't have the money. And like his original plan was he did want the Von Dutch company to become like a clothing brand. But it didn't seem like he'd really thought that far into the future about it. At the time, he was just selling the patches, and he wasn't thinking, like, quite as large-scale as Mike and Bobby were. And, like, at this point, Ed's looking to Mike and Bobby as the business partners with the industry experience who knew what to do, because they'd already had Bronze Age, you know? So it was kind of like this little trio trying to figure out, figure out where they need to go next. Way back in 1988, Mike helped his brother, Donald Castle and founder of Grind King, a skateboard truck company, by giving him the money to get Grind King off the ground. Because remember, Mike is like, he's got a lot of money, apparently. Or I guess he did have a lot of money. He lost a lot in the Bronze Age situation. But like back in the day, he had a lot of money. He was pushing the drugs, whatever. He helps his brother get Grind King off the ground, and Grind King became successful. So Donald felt like he should return the favor when Mike asked him for money to get Von Dutch off the ground, and so he gave him the money. Now, the original clothing for Von Dutch was based on the clothing that working men wear, like we said. Hard denim, cargo. The very first release of Von Dutch jeans were actually Dickies jeans. They bought the Dickies jeans and then pulled off the labels and sewed on their Von Dutch patches. I think this is so interesting because, like, learning about the history of Von Dutch and other brands that were similar at the time, like, eventually we'll get into, like, Ed Hardy and stuff like that, and it's interesting to see, like, all these different trends that I've taken note of, but like didn't realize they were all kind of inspired by this kind of counterculture movement that was happening. 
They start going to trade shows and stuff to get Von Dutch the name out there. And this is when Eli Jane and Bobby meet. So Eli Jane becomes one of the first models and the initial investors for Von Dutch. So let's talk a little bit about her. So Eli Jane is an actress, and she was like really young when she met Bobby, I think 18 years old. And she was also on Crystal Meth. She has since quit. I think she said in the docuseries it had been like 23 years since she touched it or something, but um, she was definitely on Crystal Meth. It was a part of her story. So she was a gymnast from ages 3 to 13 years old, and then she became a diver. She really wanted to be an actor or actress, but she started doing modeling first, and she loved it. So Eli says by the time that she was a junior in high school, she was roofing herself and she had already OD'd on crack, and she was doing crystal meth. Like, she was doing all sorts of scary drugs, and she grew up in Florida. So I'm not trying to say that that doesn't surprise me, but it doesn't really surprise me. Although, I don't know, I know a lot of people that have done a lot of crazy drugs um, that are my age, and we're doing them pretty young. So it's it's crazy what kids can really get their hands on. But obviously, she had this huge addiction And she said that she was, like, super unaware of what she was doing at all times. Essentially, like, pretty much whenever she was using, she was checked the fuck out. But at this point, when she meets Bobby, like, she's already, her modeling career is taking off. People are already taking interest in her. And so when he starts talking to her at this trade show about Von Dutch, like, it kind of just works out for the company. I guess one time she was modeling for Von Dutch and she started doing, like, back handsprings and shit down the runway and she said she was using at the time like she was literally tweaking and bobby like grabs her off the stage and he's like you can't do that but like holy shit and he thinks like she's so crazy and she's so different and so hot and soon enough bobby and eli fall in love and they start dating then they got pregnant and they had a little baby boy she was 19 when she had the baby and they were they were a cute little family honestly but like now shit's serious bobby has a baby and a girl to take care of like no fucking around like bobby has shit to lose now essentially eli's family basically helped them set up von dutch as a proper business eli said that she didn't realize how bad they were financially at the beginning like they were not well off like they did not they didn't really know what they were doing they didn't know how to handle money or yeah, or business. They were strapped for cash and were using Eli's mom's American Express cards to make payments on the company's behalf. So it was like that bad. All this credit in her mom's name. Things start to pick up for them though. Von Dutch is picking up in popularity. Bobby was marketing for Von Dutch in these like very campy ways. He would throw parties and shit and just grab people's attention and do so while wearing Von Dutch. So somewhere along the way, Bobby meets fucking Jerry Anderson or Gary Anderson? I don't remember. Is it Jerry or Gary? I don't know. Pamela Anderson's brother. Pamela loved Von Dutch. Gary slash Jerry and Bobby get close and they start partying together. And like, remember, this is the era of like sex tapes and crazy couples, Pamela and Tommy Lee, which I want to watch the new thing that just came out about them. Maybe I'll do an episode on them because I just feel like that would be really interesting. But anyways, So Bobby gets introduced to Pamela while she's working on the set of a show called VIP. I haven't seen it. It's an action fiction show with four seasons, which aired from 98 to 2002. So I'm sure you can like imagine how how it was. But they were in her trailer on set and she's trying on like all these different Von Dutch jeans. And then she tells Bobby that she wants to introduce him to Tommy Lee. The Tommy Lee. So Tommy invites Bobby over to party at his place, and it's the night before MTV Cribs was coming to film his house. So the next day when they arrived, 
Tommy wore a Von Dutch t-shirt and, like, had all the girls in the episode wearing, like, Von Dutch stickers and shit. And it was one of the most aired episodes in MTV history because they basically were, like, partying during the filming, which, like, wasn't done often on the show or, like, at all, really. Like, they just threw, like, a fucking party because they'd already been partying. And then they're all wearing Von Dutch t-shirts, so it's, like, giving them so much exposure. And MTV touches, like, so many cultures. I think it was Tracy Mills who was talking about this, saying, like, MTV touches so many different groups of people, especially at that time. And so to get their brand shown in front of so many different people, they were gaining attention and recognition. But none of these guys are actual businessmen, and so they didn't know what to do with it. At this time, Ed and Mike are fighting a lot. Like, they just did not get along. Mike and Bobby asked Ed to leave the company, but essentially, like, they kicked him out, and he didn't get anything. I think he said that he owned, like, 1% of the company or something crazy like that, and he ended up walking away with nothing. They didn't have, like, any fancy lawyers or anything, I guess, to, like, settle this. Um, Bobby straight up says that Ed got fucked over in all of this. Amidst all of this mess, you know, Ed's out of the picture. The company is, like, getting exposure and getting bigger, but they're just kind of, like, like, they're getting too big too fast, and they don't know how to... They haven't grown with the popularity of the brand. Like, they don't... They haven't grown as businessmen to be able to sustain this. So, financials become an issue. And, to, like, add on top of that, Mike and his brother Donald decide that they're going to throw these, like, cool-ass parties. It's like a form of marketing. You know, Mike has Von Dutch. Donald, his brother, has Grind King. They would put on events with, like, hot rod shows, body painting, fireworks. They would give away free stuff. It seems like Donald wasn't quite as indulgent with all of this. Like, he was able to keep his business operating profitably, but Mike was just not running the business properly. So, like, Donald was keeping his shit together. Mike was, like, doing all this stuff, but not really, like, essentially keeping track of the books. So they were just spending money and not bringing in enough sales to cover it. So the company would, like, perform well, pick up some traction, and then Mike would basically, like, run it into the ground financially. He was used to having fast cash. He was used to moving units. Like, he was he was creative and he was a hustler, but he didn't have the business acumen to keep the company growing sustainably. So now we're going to bring in a new character, and his name is Tony Sorensen. And it's Tony with two N's. I don't like that. So Tony Sorensen is a Danish man. And he's an incredibly skilled martial arts man. What's the word? <laughs> he's a martial arts man. So Tony was born and raised in Copenhagen, Denmark, and he's the product of a divorced family. At a very young age, he saw Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee, and that was what inspired him to do martial arts. He says martial arts is a way of living. He became a black belt at 17 and when he was 25, his dad passed away, unfortunately, from lung cancer at the very young age of 49. Like, that's so young. That's really sad. And this inspired him to live every day to the fullest. He says in the docuseries that he's a seven-time Scandinavian champion, a one-time European champion. He went to the Olympics in Seoul, and he's a Taekwondo champion. And he's kind of cute. Like, he's like DILF cute. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's definitely cute to me. <laughs> so one time he won first place heavyweight champion in Denmark for something. And he was like inspired by this. And he decided that he was going to go to Hollywood and try his shot at being the next big martial arts movie figure. He was like, I have what it takes to be an action hero in a movie. 
And he did do some low-budget movies, but he didn't like them. He Like, in the moment, he didn't like them. Now he says he hates them. Um, it just, like, wasn't what he wanted to do. But he stayed. Tony was intrigued by the American culture. He said growing up watching America from the outside was so enticing. He loved seeing all the cars and motorcycles and the denim. He said something along the lines of America being, like, hamburgers on the moon or something like that. <laughs> and I love it. Um, but Tony had a thing for Cadillacs, apparently, and he was introduced to Von Dutch through this auto shop that he was frequenting a lot. This auto shop was selling the, like, iconic Von Dutch wife beaters with the logo on it, and it's the year 2000, so yes, this all makes sense. So this is ultimately how Mike and Tony are introduced. This is the most California thing I've ever heard. So the auto shop guy introduces Tony and Mike at a car show at an In-N-Out. Mike and Tony hit it off very well. Like, Mike learns that Tony's married to this rich Brazilian woman, and now they're broing it out all the time, best buds, whatever. Suddenly, Tony's an investor in the company, and they're looking for warehouse spaces for Von Dutch. So by November of 2000, Tony is bought into the company at 51%, effectively pushing out some other smaller investors and ultimately becoming CEO. Mike was the creative director because, like, Tony didn't know anything about the industry. And also, Tony was just supposed to be basically, like, supporting the company while Mike continued to design the clothes. So they kind of had this, like, mutual relationship going on. When Tony joined Von Dutch, there was no infrastructure or distribution channels, and there were days where they made no sales. So that was when they decided, they were like, okay, we need to turn this around. We need to hire a staff of people that, like, know what's going on. Because the clothes were dope. Like, everything was so cool, but they were just not doing it the right way. And so they're like, we can turn this around. We can fix this. So Tony hires Caroline Rothwell. She knew all about cars and motorcycles and music. And she started at this uh, company as a store manager. And then she moved into a business manager role. And then she like ultimately became the VP of marketing. They also hired a man named Niels Jule. I think he said it's like Jule, Jule um, from Denmark. And he was the VP of international sales. Tony and Niels were very close. Like, they had dinner together every Friday. It was a tradition that they had. And Tony said that, like, having Niels there helped him feel more at home because he had someone that he could speak Danish with. For a while, it seemed like Mike and Tony were very much on the same page for what they wanted for Don Von Dutch. <laughs> Don Vutch. For Von Dutch. They wanted this, like, all-American experience, you know, this street culture vibe. It was going to be, like, really cool, really classic, whatever. So things seem to be going good. Mike is the creative part of the brain and Tony's the logical part of the brain. But things go wrong relatively quickly. So by the time Tony has had a million dollars invested into the company, some problems start arising and then it just kind of avalanches. So one of the first things was Mike was like, oh, my brother Donald, he doesn't want to be involved in the company anymore. We need to buy him out for $260,000. And Tony's like, all right, whatever, buys him out. Then Mike wants to buy the store, and Tony was like, no, I want the store. So he buys the store. And things start getting a little tense. You know, Tony's paying the rent for all their buildings. He's paying for people's salaries. He's paying for all sorts of things. But there's, like, no sales coming in, so he's just sinking money. He's invested so much money into the company at this point. And it's, like, so weird because the, the brand is getting, like, these bursts of popularity and sales, and then they just plummet. Like, they just don't know how to keep it sustainable. There was no plan for the company. There was no budget, just vibes, just vibes and like really cool clothes. 
you might be wondering, where's Bobby? Like, we started talking about Tony, and now Bobby seems to be out of the picture. Well, by this point, none of the new hires have even met Bobby, including Tony. So in the Hulu documentary, Bobby claims that once Tony started working with Mike, the lines of communication were, like, essentially cut. Mike claims that they just stopped hanging out slowly, but it just seems like, you know, Tony came in with the money and he was going to take the brand where they wanted it to go. And like, like I mentioned earlier, Bobby wasn't really, he wasn't really like, he didn't contribute to the designs and stuff. He wasn't like the creator. He was just like working for Mike essentially. So he wasn't like an integral piece that needed to be in that relationship, I guess, in Tony's eyes. So that's kind of where that happened. But Bobby was still throwing all these parties and events to advertise the brand, like he was working to make a name, a culture, an experience for Von Dutch. So Eli and Bobby, they're still together at this point, and one day they accidentally bump into Mark Rivas in Santa Cruz. So yes, Mark Rivas is back in the picture. And apparently after Mark and Bobby parted ways in Mexico, Mark spent nine months struggling there, but it was like so rough that he actually returned to California and turned himself in for the murder of that guy outside of the Burger King back in 1993. And obviously, like, he's out of jail at this point. He was sentenced as a juvenile because it occurred when they were 17, um, like when the murder happened. And he was sentenced to seven years in jail, but I think I saw that he only did like five or something like that. Um, And it was at one of the worst juvenile detention centers in California. So there were rumors that Mark and the other inmates were forced into caged cells to fight each other, essentially, to their deaths. So it was, like, pretty rough in there. And when Bobby and Mark reunited, the connection was instant. They were like, dude, bros for fucking life. Like, no matter how much time has passed, we are bros. And Mark basically came and lived with Eli and Bobby and their baby, Elijah. Bobby starts changing at this point. Mark brings out a different side of him that Eli hasn't really seen yet, you know, because after Mark left to Mexico, Bobby is like, okay, I'm going to turn my life around. That's when he started working with Bronze Age, Von Dutch, Mike. And I mean, I guess Mike, like they said at the beginning, is like not a great guy to be around, but I don't think that Bobby was really involved too much with like anything dangerous. But at this point, Eli hasn't really seen him around Mark. So Eli said that Bobby stopped coming around as much. He chose Mark over her, like, some weird bro shit. But then Eli left her son with with Bobby and left Bobby. So she was like, all right, like, I'm out and just left them, I guess. She was also still smoking meth. She was like, I have a baby. I put him in the other room and then I go and smoke meth. Like, and his dad isn't around, like, whatever. So she just leaves them. And Bobby is, like, still hanging out with Mark, running gang shit but also raising his son Elijah as a single father. So Bobby brings Mark into the world of Von Dutch. They're throwing parties together. They're selling the clothes. And it's interesting, like, Bobby and Mark are doing, like, they're keeping it very much connected to what started it, um, like, the culture that started it. You know, it was Bronze Age was originated, like, out of drug money, and Von Dutch was kind of just, like, the perfect way to swoop in and continue Bronze Age's legacy under a different brand name. So he's keeping it close to its roots, you know, doing gang shit, whatever. Bobby said that Mark still has this, like, convict mentality. And Mark doesn't like 
what he's hearing about Mike and Tony's relationship, like based on what Bobby has explained to him about, you know, the state of Von Dutch, his relationship with Mike, how he hasn't really seen Mike since Tony started working with him. And neither Bobby or Mark have actually even met Tony in person yet. So they're just getting all hot and bothered, basically, that they're like, we don't have as much like exposure to Von Dutch as we'd like. Like we deserve to be involved in the business decisions. We want to be making money. And so they're getting a little bit upset. So it's 2002 at this point. Bobby and Mark are scheming. They want their piece of the pie. They want to have their own Von Dutch line. They feel like they deserve to be involved with it since Bobby and Mike were part of Von Dutch like from the beginning. And it's not cool that this Danish guy just showed up and like took things over, which is kind of funny because it's like Ed had it first. Then Mike and Bobby came in and they kicked Ed out. And now Tony's coming in and like, we'll see. So. Bobby and Mark decide that it's time that they go meet Tony. And Bobby's like, hey, Tony, nice to meet you. Um, This is Mark, and he just got out of jail for murder. And they brought a gun, and they, like, set it on the table. And they're trying to, like, you know, threaten Tony and be like, look, dude, like, you got involved with this clothing brand that, like, is pretty hardcore. So just be aware of what you got yourself into. Tony's like, okay, listen, you can have the sports line. Like, no need to get hostile. We'll do everything else. Like, we'll focus on the denim. We'll focus on these things. I think they said diesel denim was, like, their big thing. You just have to follow these rules in this contract, represent the company like this, and we have a deal. So Tony writes up this contract. And Bobby's like, okay. Doesn't really read through the contract, but he signs it anyway because Tony gives him $10,000 cash right there. And he's thinking, like, okay, cool. Everything's fine. We're going to be one big company. So little does Bobby know since he didn't really, like, look through the contract, he signed a contract saying that he would become a licensee. And that $10,000 that he received was because he signed over his 20% ownership to Tony in that contract. And so, based on this contract, Bobby was only supposed to be working on this sports line that they had proposed. Like, that was it. And he was using the Von Dutch name. But he started working on denim, which was in breach of the contract. And apparently, like, That was like the one thing that he was really not supposed to be working on was denim for Von Dutch. So Tony was like, okay, cool. Your license is up. So Bobby gets ceased and desisted and his license is terminated. And Tony was like, hell no, am I working with these guys? Goodbye. Like the second they violated the contract, he was like, cool, I'm done. I don't want to be fucking with you guys. Stephen Lowe, a lawyer familiar with the case, says that basically Tony wrote this like super heavy handed contract. And then got Bobby to sign it without any legal representation. And in the contract, he had wrote very many ways to get Bobby kicked out. Like, he he basically set it up so, like, if Bobby did anything, then it would be, like, very easy to get him removed from the company. No association. And Tony says that it was solely based on the business and had nothing to do with their personalities. Which I'm like, okay, Tony. Okay. I mean, he's... Like, it probably did mainly just have to do with the business, but also, like, their personalities were 100% taken into consideration. So I think that's where I'm going to leave it for today. I'm going to leave you guys with a bit of a cliffhanger, so... Yeah. (laughs) Don't hate me. I guess we can kind of summarize. So, basically, we've got this cool SoCal clothing brand coming up and coming, and we've got... Mark and Bobby all upset because now they've been kicked out of being able to work on this brand, being able to get their money, and Tony is, like, slowly overpowering Mike. 
Next week, we'll get into some more of the juiciness, but that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or anything. You can always contact me at profskeppodcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can always email us at the link in bio if you have any questions or things you'd like to submit, different topics, feedback, whatever. But yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing up this episode next week for you guys. And don't forget, stay sus skeptics. Till next time. Bye. Love you. Mwah.